Let's pray. Father, we come before you once more and ask that you would meet with us as we study your word. Father, that we would find in this passage a wonderful reminders, things maybe we've forgotten or things maybe we've never seen before. Father, we pray that you would be at work among us to take your truth by the power of your spirit and apply it and work it into the hearts of everyone here this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We return this morning to our study of verses 21 to 43, a long section, so we're taking two Sundays to look at it. It's a section that's really about the mercy of Jesus Christ, something we need to think frequently of, the mercy of Christ. And in particular, it's the mercy of Jesus demonstrated to a prominent or leading man in Jerusalem, a nameless woman in a crowd, and then to a lifeless child. And what we began to see last week is that fundamentally, God is a being who is inherently merciful, uh, contrasted with the gods of the pagan world who were capricious, cold, demanding, God's natural disposition is one that stands ready to relieve the misery of all His fallen creatures. Now, this is especially true of His covenant people. While God stands ready to relieve the misery of the world at large, there is a special place in the heart of God for His covenant people. And because of His mercy... God looks at His people with all their struggles, all their pain, all their weaknesses. He looks at them with a pitying eye. And He he comes to them when they're struggling and He's moved to help them and He comes to them in an understanding way. He doesn't reproach us for our struggles. He understands that life in this world is difficult. It's hard. It's marked by pain and struggle. He's not annoyed with us when we come to Him. He's not bothered that you are so needy. Right? He's not bothered by that. He delights, actually. His great delight is to see you in your struggle, see you having blown it again, and to see you cry out to Him for help. That is his delight. And his delight then is to come to you and give you the strength and help that you need to be his kind of man, his kind of woman, his kind of child. And what we begin to see last week is that as we looked at the interaction between Jesus and Jairus and the nameless woman, what we began to see was that when needy people, regardless of their social status, come to Jesus in simple, sincere faith, that there's a sort of double pull on him to act. By nature, he's merciful, but then when he sees the simple, childlike faith of his children, he, he is moved, compelled, constrained to act for them. Now, this is not to put us above him and make God our puppet, but it's, it's simply this. What is the one thing in all the earth that is the most pleasing and most delightful to God from a human perspective? I wonder what your answer to that would be. That's a difficult question. What is the most pleasing and most delightful thing to God from a human perspective? I would argue that it's faith. It's our faith. And my argument would go something like this, Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Fundamentally, faith is requisite, necessary, foundational, if we are going to please God. If we have faith then, that is the thing, fundamentally, that is the most pleasing to Him. Sincere, genuine, childlike faith. When we come to Him in faith, 
He therefore is constrained to help us, not as if we have authority over Him, but His internal working, His character, His perfection, who He is, is a God of mercy. And then He's pleased when we're full of faith and trust Him simply. And so when these two things come together, something like Hosea 11.8 happens, where the Lord says, My heart is turned over within me, and all my compassions are kindled. Faith, unhypocritical, simple faith, is what kindles the mercy of God and moves Him to act. And when we exercise this type of faith, He's compelled, or He comes to us rather with compassion. He doesn't treat us according to our sin. He doesn't treat us according to what our foolishness deserves. He looks at us with pity. He remembers our frame. Here's our prayer, sees our faith, and He comes to us in tender mercy. And that's what we've seen so far in this passage, and that's what we're going to see again this morning as we finish up chapter 5. So we're going to read Mark 5, beginning of verse 21, and you can stay seated because it's a long section of Scripture. I just want you to read along with me, uh, and we'll begin, like I said, back in verse 21 and make our way to the end of the chapter. So read along with me, Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, verse 29, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Amazing, amazing story. And as we mentioned last week, and as you can see as we read through this again, these two stories are interwoven, they're intertwined, and one of the, they interact with one another. And we spent some time last week thinking about how this really plays out, but let me just give you the big picture. Both of these people are in desperate situations, and both of them, out of their desperation, or in their desperation rather, are forced to turn to Jesus in faith. 
And what's really striking about this is that despite being on different ends of the social spectrum, right, Jairus, synagogue official, the nameless woman, poor, impoverished, chronic illness, but despite them being on different ends of the social spectrum, Jesus responds to both of them with compassion, and he rewards their simple, genuine faith with mercy and help. It's a reminder for us all that there's no partiality in God. Uh, There's no special treatment for the rich and the famous, distinct from the treatment that the poor and the uh, isolated or despised receive. Jesus is a God who is able to get his arms around the full social spectrum. He gets his arms around the extremes on either end. And anyone within that spectrum who comes to him in faith receives the same measure of mercy and help. Praise the Lord for that. And so then in verse 21 to 24, just kind of reviewing leading up to where we are this morning, we saw that Jairus came up to Jesus in faith. He's on the higher end of the social spectrum. He comes to Jesus, though, in faith. He's humbled. He's desperate. His daughter is dying. He makes his plea to the Lord, and the Lord responds in faith. Verse 24, A, Jesus responds by simply going away with him. And you'll remember, as they're going along, something happens. Crowd pressing in all around. And one person in the crowd, a nameless woman, she was described in one long Greek sentence there. Um, she comes up and touches Jesus' garment. She, she was in a desperate position as well. She had suffered for 12 years from a disease that left her physically distressed and socially ostracized. Uh, Verse 26 tells us that she had spent all of her money looking for a cure, uh, but she had found no help from the doctors, and actually her state now was worse than it was before. Not only was she chronically ill, not only had she exhausted all of her resources and all the hope was gone, but now she's poor. She spent all of her money trying to find what she couldn't get. And in a last-ditch effort, she turns to Jesus here for help. And you'll remember that her condition rendered her ceremonially unclean, meaning that she can't touch anybody. She's not even supposed to be out in a crowd. So she's sort of violating the ceremonial law just by being out. But she hears about Jesus. And what she hears is enough to push her outside of this little safety net that she would have been in to push her to risk, greatly risk, really, uh, in order to touch the garment of Jesus so that she could be healed. She, she, she knows, rather, that Jesus is at least proclaiming to be the Messiah, and she's believing that. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah will heal us of our diseases. And here he is. Here's her shot. Well, fear would have kept her from acting, but she's courageous. Her faith is simple. But it's courageous, and she reaches out. And remember verse 29, her thought is, I think that's verse 29. Nope, verse 28. Her thought is, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And she was exactly right. So verse 29, she touches his garment, and then immediately, verse 29, her flow of blood is dried up, and she feels in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Twelve years of misery reversed in a moment. And what was her response? She just runs up and hugs Jesus and says, thank you so much. No. From the passage, the way that it unfolds, it looks as if she's like running away from Jesus to hide. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus knew that power had gone out from him, and he began to look for the person who had touched him. And the implication of verse 32, if you look at that, is that it took Jesus some time to find this woman. Maybe the crowd just sort of, you know, overtook her, she hides, Uh, who knows exactly what's happening. But she is sort of cowering down, trembling in fear. She knows what's happened, she knows what she's done, she knows that she's probably in trouble. Because now her suspicion that Jesus is the Messiah is confirmed. And she understands this as God incarnate. 
and she understands that she has just touched the garment of God with unclean hands. And she knows what's coming for her. So verse 33, she's fearing and trembling. Fearing and trembling. But at some point she realizes that Jesus is looking for her. Or maybe the crowd stops, who knows what happens. But she gathers that this man knows what has happened. She knows that Jesus is on the hunt for her. So she, verse 33, aware of what had happened, she comes to him, she falls down, and tells him the whole truth. She's fearful, she's terrified. Not with the paternal fear of a daughter for a father, but with dread at what is coming her way. She understood, at least in part, that God is holy. She was a sinner. And in that, she was correct. But her understanding of God was incomplete. Right? She's got holiness sort of down, sort of. But she doesn't have mercy. She doesn't understand that there is more to God than just separation and holiness. And she has no idea how compassionate the Messiah truly is. And so Jesus comes to her and He's going to show her a breadth of mercy that she has never imagined. Verse 32. He finds her. doesn't let her get her way. Why is that? Why is Jesus hunting her down? Well, my argument is that her faith has provoked Him. Her faith has, has provoked Him. It's He's aware of it. He's aware that whoever has touched him has a simple, sincere faith that is uncommon in all of Israel. He's aware of that. And so he's trying to find this woman who's exercised faith that is wonderful to him, is delightful to him, is the thing on earth that is most pleasing to him. And he's just trying to find her. And she thinks he's trying to hunt her down to wipe her off the face of the earth. And all of a sudden... The Lord, she comes to the Lord, she bows down, she says, tells him the whole truth. And remember, even that suggests that she's fearful. Right? Tell me the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Right? She thinks she's under, uh, she's in trouble. And the Lord, in a shocking turn of events for her, the Lord looks at her and he says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. No sweeter words had she ever heard. Daughter, your faith has made you well. No reproach, not a hint of reproach here. No impatience, no frustration, no no annoyance on Jesus' part. Only an understanding and a pity that recognizes this woman's weak, feeble frame, sees her in her despair, her struggle, and comes to her with loving, merciful arms and gives her the help she needs. And actually, where we left off last week, unless you think I'm going to preach that sermon again, I'm now done with that, okay? Um, Well, almost done with that. (laughs) Where we left, left off last week is I wanted to point out to you that Jesus is correcting her theology here, right? He's recalibrating the way that she thinks about God. He looks at her and he calls her daughter, something that she thought probably most likely she never thought that God would say to her. Maybe, I mean, certainly she knew that the Lord referred to his people with familial language, daughter, son. She knew that. But there's often a disconnect, and you, you know this. There's a disconnect between your thinking and your affections. You can say this is theologically true, but your experience of that is often Uh, You know, there's a great chasm between. And all of a sudden, in this moment, she's brought face to face with her theological confession, perhaps in the Old Testament, that God is merciful and gracious. But all of a sudden, her confessed theology is lining up with her experience. That she is called a daughter of God really would have confirmed, it would have sort of, you think about here's the theology of the Old Testament, and here's her experience. Does she feel like a daughter of God? No, she's isolated, ostracized. She thinks God's against her. She's fearful of Him. But she probably would have confessed that God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. We see that everywhere in the Old Testament. 
But all of a sudden in this moment, Jesus sort of brings these things together and boom. It all lines up. And she experiences for the first time the love of God in Christ. And she's never the same. Twelve years of misery, social isolation are exchanged for familial intimacy with God. She's not just a daughter by name now. She's a daughter by experience. And the Lord Jesus treats her as a daughter. And she hasn't been treated like this for 12 years. Maybe before then, we don't know. But all of a sudden, she is treated as if she is a precious daughter. So the Lord here is recalibrating her theology. Now there's another thing that I didn't get to last week that I want to point out to you here. Not only is the Lord recalibrating her theology and showing her that God is merciful, that He is merciful, but He's also recalibrating her understanding of faith. Now I want to point this out to you because it's really important. Here's what I mean. Uh, She thought, if you go back to verse 28, if I just touch his garment, I will be healed. The focus for her, in one sense, was on his garment. And I I think this is in sort of a magical way. We see a similar thing in uh, Acts chapter 5. You remember there that people think they're laying out their dead in the streets, hoping that Peter would walk by and that Peter's shadow would fall on them and something would happen. Right? They're thinking uh, superstitiously here that if, if I touch his garment, and this is, this is really, or if I'm in his shadow, that something wonderful will happen. And this is a common way of thinking in the first century. If you could touch, be in the presence of a great man or woman, that their power and their wisdom would sort of rub off on you. And we actually, there's a similar thing that happens in charismatic churches, and I won't get off on a rabbit trail here. Um, But there's this thought that if I can go lay... This is really strange. I'm telling you this is a caveat. Um, This is dangerous when you get off on rabbit trails in the middle of a sermon. Um, But there's this thought that you can go to the grave of A.W. Tozer. Great pastor. You go to the grave of A.W. Tozer and lay on it and somehow sort of pull up some of the ministry power of A.W. Tozer. That's a common way of thinking. Just check it out. Google it. Um... It's not different, any different than what this woman is thinking here. If I just touch his garment, if I could somehow touch Spurgeon's Bible, I could preach better. And the Lord corrects her. He doesn't let her keep this wrong notion. He looks at her and he says, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. My garment is not what has made you well. Peter's shadow does not make you well. It's faith. Your faith in Christ is what has healed you. It's just a good reminder for us that we have to filter our experiences through the grid of Scripture. Here was this woman with faith, but she also has all these superstitions that she's sort of bringing to the equation. And as a matter of experience... When she touches his garment and she's healed, her superstition is actually confirmed by experience. At least she thinks. But the Lord knows that if he doesn't correct her bad understanding of faith here, she's going to go tell everyone, look, all you got to do is sneak up and touch his garment and you're going to be fine. All these unbelievers are going to be pressing in on him even more. And honestly, this is what happens in the charismatic movement by and large. Experiences you have, but you don't filter them through the grid of Scripture. Now you're the authority and definer of what you've experienced. We have to, as Christians, we have to constantly be taking our experiences and filter them through the grid of Scripture and let Scripture define for us what we've actually experienced. And that's what Jesus does here. He defines for her what she has experienced. It's not a magic touch of the garment It's faith. It's faith that has healed you. And then notice lastly in verse 34, 
that Jesus exhorts her to live in peace. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. In other words, don't, don't be, stop being so afraid. Like, don't run from me anymore. Look, I'm holy, yes, I'm also merciful. You're my daughter. We're at peace. Stop running, stop hiding. Don't fear judgment any longer. It's taken care of. Live as my daughter. Be healed of your affliction and live at peace. Now, I could say a lot more about There's so much here that we could spend lots of time unpacking it. But we do need to move on. So let's get into verse 35. As Jesus then is wrapping up this interaction with Jairus, or with this nameless woman rather, a report comes to Jairus that his little girl has now died. And it actually, in verse 35, it actually goes beyond just a report. Look at verse 35 with me. They say, your daughter has died. There's the report. All right, that's one thing. But they take it a little bit further, and they proceed to give Jairus some counsel in the form of a question. Your daughter has died. Now, why trouble the teacher anymore? In other words... Stop bothering Jesus. She's dead. She's, she's dead. Now, don't trouble him anymore. It's interesting, in all the major, um, important, significant English translations, we, it's all, every translation translates this word, this Greek word, as trouble. Why trouble the teacher? And the word means to weary, harass, or annoy him. And that's the idea. They're basically saying, look, Jairus, she's dead. Now stop it. Stop bothering Jesus about her. Stop harassing him. Don't inconvenience him any further. Come home, join the funeral. And there's nothing more that can be done. Now, what strikes me here, probably strikes you too, is how completely and utterly wrong they are here. Not only is there nothing to be done, but they're wrong in the sense that Jesus is not being annoyed by Jairus. Right, what is the one thing that God looks for with delight and satisfaction on the earth? Hebrews 11.6. It's the faith of His people. And here is Jairus who's exercising faith. And, and, and the Lord Jesus is, is saying, thinking, finally, someone is believing here. And they're looking at Jairus and saying, look, stop bothering him. Leave him alone. For one, Jesus doesn't need them to be his like PR person, right? He doesn't need them to keep him undistracted from people that might be bothering him. But what they're doing here, and this is so important, what they're doing here is they're projecting their bad theology onto the situation. And so their counsel to Jairus, Jairus in the form of a question, has a, a, an unbiblical, erroneous theological bent to it. It seems innocent. Stop bothering him. But it's way more than that. And I, I just want to point out here that all counseling, all counseling, all advice, I'm not talking about just uh, you know, sitting down, the formal counseling, but all advice that's ever given, all counseling is theological. Every piece of advice that you have ever given anyone is rooted in theology. Every, every piece of it. Theology is somehow touching what you have to say. Whether you're a clinical psychologist or a layman, your counsel to others is always grounded in your understanding of God. It's inescapable, and I wish we had time to press in on it, but again, we need to move on. And suffice it to say here that all counseling is either biblical or unbiblical. Those are the options. Biblical or unbiblical. And in this case, their counsel to Jairus is totally unbiblical. It's brief, but it's freighted with deadly theological presuppositions. And I just want to point out two of them for you. Like maybe you're looking at this and thinking, I don't see counsel, I don't see that. Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. First, the first poisonous, deadly theological presupposition here is that their counsel to Jairus implies that there is nothing more that Jesus can do. Doesn't it? Why bother the teacher anymore? She's dead. 
it says that Jesus is helpful up to a certain point. But when the problem is something as big as death, Jesus can't really help. It's, it's a counsel that sees Jesus as insufficient. It, it says that there's a, a, a deficit, there's a limitation on Jesus that makes Him inadequate in some scenarios. And their error here is not necessary to look at Jesus. Um, let me put that differently. Their error here is that they're not seeing in Jesus the infinite resource that He is. That's not, they're not looking at that. There's a limitation. The limitation is death. Death is the thing that's too big for Jesus. And so what they're doing here is they're giving counsel that undermines biblical sufficiency, the sufficiency of Christ, which is always deadly, always dangerous, and always leaves God's people, especially in a state of hopelessness. Because if you limit Christ, what hope is there? You can cope with some of your problems, but there's no real hope for change. So that's first. Their counsel implies an inadequacy in Christ. Second, though, their counsel implies that needy sinners are a bother to Jesus. Now you tell me, what are the ramifications of that view? Many of you, probably all of you, have walked that road before. You know where that theological view leads. And some of you may be there here this morning thinking, wait, I, that's where I am now. I feel like a huge bother to Jesus all the time. Well, you've taken bad counsel. And I want to show you that this is wrong. There is not a sinner, there's never been a sinner who comes to Jesus in faith that has been an annoyance to him. In fact, it's our persistent faith that is precious to Jesus. He, he calls us to seek, knock, ask again and again and again. In Luke 18.1, he encourages his disciples this way. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he gives the parable of the persistent widow. You remember that? Who no matter how often she was denied... What does she do? She keeps coming. She keeps on coming. Talk about annoying, at least to us. Right? Annoying to the judge. She keeps coming over and over and over and over again. And Jesus says, be like her. Be like this annoying woman who keeps knocking, keeps coming. And the way that the parable concludes, I think, is what is most revealing. Verse 8 of Luke 18 it ends with this question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Now why is that so revealing? For this reason. Because the faith that understands that God is not annoyed with me when I keep coming to Him again and again and again is the thing that is pleasing to God. If I lack that, if I think God is annoyed by me when I keep having to come to Him for messing up with my children again, messing up at work again, messing up here or there again, if I think that God is annoyed and bothered by me, am I going to come to Him? Let me ask you. If every time you need help and you go to your dad and he beats you up about it, he's already taught you this 15 times, how long are you going to keep going to Him and asking Him for help? Not very much. It won't last very long. And so, here's the issue. If you think that God, or think that Jesus is annoyed with you for coming to Him again and again, you'll give up, you'll stop praying, and then you'll just put yourself in a posture of coping with your problem. And that's what these counselors of Jairus, that's, that's sort of where they're leading Him. They're leading Him in a direction where they don't see that Jesus is as merciful as He really is. And they see Jesus as limited, restricted, and bounded. And so for Jairus, the temptation then would be for him to think, yeah, they're right. I am bothering him. That's right. He was on a mission, right? He was going somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was headed somewhere when I fell down and asked him to come and save my daughter. 
That's right. They're right. I, I've been an annoyance to him. I've been a trouble to him. And Jesus uh, doesn't want Jairus to think this way at all. Jesus understands, we understand that these guys are all wrong and, and that their counsel to him is full of theological poison. But notice how Jesus responds. If it was me, I would probably say, hey, 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 look, don't listen to these guys. That is not the way that Jesus is. He's not bothered. He's not annoyed by you. But notice what Jesus does in verse 36. Jesus, overhearing what has, was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. He hears what these folks are saying, and he totally ignores it. He doesn't challenge them. He doesn't get into a debate with them uh, about their theological error. Why? He does sometimes. I'll tell you why. His eye is focused on this man who has exercised simple, genuine faith. His eye is on Jairus. And does Jairus need a theological debate happening right now while his daughter is dead down the road? No, that's not what Jairus needs. And the Lord understands this. The Lord also understands that Jairus is going to be tempted to heed that counsel. And so he looks at Jairus, and he gives him a better piece of counsel. Really, it's a command. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Amazing. The NASB adds the little phrase for clarity, don't be afraid any longer. And what they're trying to do is to communicate that in English, uh, communicate in English what appears to be going on here with Jairus. And that's this. Jairus, although he started off well, he seems to be wavering a bit as he thinks about this report of his daughter. This is painful, tragic news. And the tragedy of it all is amplifying in his mind and all of a sudden, all he can think about would be the death of his daughter. And here they come. Don't bother him anymore. Let's just go to the funeral. And he goes from thinking about Jesus as the only hope for him and his daughter. I mean, just think about it. What is the contrast from uh, 22, chapter 5, verse 22 to where we are now. Jairus goes from looking at Jesus as the only hope for him and his daughter, now most likely to only thinking about the loss of his daughter and the pain and the difficulty of his circumstances. All of a sudden, his eyes are off Jesus and he's just thinking about the loss of his daughter. All he can think about is what he has lost. And I'll tell you, that, that is a pathway to despair. As soon as you get your eyes off of the Lord in the midst of your trouble, that's the pathway to despair and fear. But notice the gracious way that the Lord deals with Jairus. He doesn't say, look, Jairus, you got to get it together, man. Don't you know who I am? Come on. All right. Let's go, cupcake. We're going to save your daughter, get it together, trust me, believe me, what's wrong with you? You were just now on your knees, trusting and believing me, and now you're afraid? Come on. There's not a hint of that. And Jesus understands the emotional upheaval that Jairus is experiencing. He gets it. He gets the pain, he gets the hurt. He's just been, Jairus has just been struck with a blow that feels too hard for him to handle. And you've been struck with a similar blow. It just feels like it's too much. I can't handle it. I can't go for it. This is too much for me. And then on top of that, he's just received some ungodly, poisonous counsel. God doesn't care about you. Leave him alone. And Jesus looks at Jairus, understands his pain, and like a loving father, he comes to him and he says, Jairus, don't be afraid. 
only believe. Don't be afraid. Only believe. How many times have you needed to hear that from the Lord? Don't be afraid. Only believe. It's a reminder for Jairus not to give in to the despair that's pulling him. Not to give in, but to cling to faith. To keep on, literally, that's the idea. Keep on believing. You were doing good. You're waffling a little bit, but don't do that. Start doing this. Continue to believe. Put off fear that sort of exalts your circumstances above God and put on faith. And let me just make an application here. Whenever sinful fear is on the increase or on the rise in your life, I can tell you why. When you are fearful, sinfully so, I'm talking about fearful of a spider. You should all be fearful of this. Um, I'm talking about sinful fear. When you are sinfully fearful, it's because you are forgetting God. When you are sinfully fearful, it's because you are forgetting God. You're forgetting to remember God in the midst of your trouble. And you may say, that sounds like a bold, comprehensive, sweeping statement. It is. It is. But that's reality. If you just think about the exhortations in the Psalms. David, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the heart of the sea. What is he doing there? Well, he's realizing, well, actually, he's calling to mind the being, the person, the character of God in the midst of his trouble. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because that's true, therefore we will not fear, Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though, though the earth itself is in an upheaval. I know that God is present with me and He is a refuge and strength for His people. But when you forget that God is a refuge and strength for His people, when you forget God in the midst of your trouble, then you're as crazy as everyone else around you. You're running around trying to figure out some problem, some solution. You're stressed, you're anxious, you're losing sleep. You've forgotten God in the midst of your problem. Or you've exalted your circumstance to be bigger than God. Your problem has outgrown your God. And that's dangerous. Because it's a recipe for despair. But what faith does, and what God is calling, or Jesus is calling Jairus to do here, is to bring God back into the picture. And that's what faith does. Faith brings the God of Scripture and all His power, His majesty, His mercy, it brings God to bear on my situation. It doesn't ignore the problem. We're not just talking about sweeping everything under the rug. It doesn't ignore the problem. It doesn't downplay the problem. It just brings a big, powerful, sovereign, all-loving God to bear on my situation. That's what faith does. It remembers also God's past faithfulness. And therefore it hopes and trusts that God, who is eternally unchanging, will be merciful and faithful to me as He has been in the past. That's what faith does. Let me just put it another way. I was tempted to preach a whole sermon on this little phrase. It's so powerful. So powerful. Faith doesn't pull me out of my problem. It just brings God into my problem. Right? That's what faith does. Now, God is always there. Right? You can't bring God. He's not your little puppet God that you can bring wherever you want Him. You can't, we don't do that. God is always there, but what changes is your recollection. You're setting before yourself the sovereign, powerful, all-merciful, all-wise God who has decreed every moment of your entire life. Now, when you bring that God to bear in your problem, all of a sudden, your problems shrink. They're still there. But you now have a perspective on your problem that you lost before. And when you lose that perspective, when you lose your understanding, when you don't bring God to bear on your problem, the result is always fear. And faith is what the Lord calls us to. It pleases Him, but it also 
is what sets our problems in the proper scale. Faith sets God before our eyes. It doesn't say our problems are small. It just says God is much bigger. And so what Jesus is calling Jairus to do here is just simple. It's really simple. It's not that complicated. I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm not saying it's, it doesn't take work. But it's a simple act. Don't fear. Only believe. Stop that. Start this. Stop being afraid. Start believing. And so Jairus takes up his courage, and the men recommence their journey to Jairus' house. Right? He heeds the Lord, and off they go. In verse 37, interestingly, we're told that no one was allowed to accompany Jesus, or him, except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. This is an interesting detail. There are a couple of interesting details here that we'll point out to you. Um, they're just interesting. We're not told why that is. Why was it only Peter, James, and John? We don't know. They are the inner circle. They'll become the inner circle. They're involved. They see things that the other disciples don't get to see. But it's not because they were more faithful. We just think about Peter. All right, why was it these three? We don't know. We're not told. All, we're no, all we know is that these are the three men that Jesus wanted to be there. So verse 38, they make it to Jairus' home and, and they arrive to a scene of commotion. People weeping loudly and wailing, which indicates the worst for Jairus, doesn't it? It's exactly as they were, they, the report um, communicated. She has died, and it's a chaotic scene. Family and friends were there weeping and mourning. And there would have also been professional mourners there as well, which is a strange idea to us, but it was common in the ancient world to pay professional mourners, there was, there was an equivalent between the outcry of the funeral, the weeping, the wailing, the dirges, and the love for the deceased. And so it was a chaotic scene. And then Jesus walks up and actually throws into the mix even a little more chaos. Verse 39, he asks a rhetorical question. Why make a commotion and weep? It's a strange thing to ask at a funeral. Why, why make a commotion and weep? And then he says, the child has not died, but is asleep. And then verse 40, look how they respond. They began laughing at him. And there's a measure of scorn to their response. It's really similar uh, to the way that the disciples respond to Jesus in verse 31, Jesus asked them, Who touched my garments? And they say, You see the crowd pressing in on you? And you say, Who touched me? It's kind of a patronizing, What's happening here? And so here's Jesus, and here's them, right? They're, they're sort of looking down on him, they're laughing at him, they're scorning, What are you talking about? And they laugh at him, which indicates probably that they really are paid mourners, right? They're sort of in act as Jesus starts to communicate with them. And they laugh, though, because they understand. I mean, these are professional mourners. They've seen a lot of dead people. They understand that this girl is really dead. And so they laugh because they know the fact. For Jesus to say that she's just asleep is perfectly outrageous for them. Who is this guy? I thought he was some wise teacher. He seems like a lunatic in here, telling us that she's only asleep. And they know that she's dead. And so does Jesus. So let me just clear the air here. Jesus is not mistaken about this girl. Uh, Jesus is not wrong here to say that she's asleep. He understands that she's dead. But unlike the mourners, Jesus understands that the little girl's death is not the end, which is why he says she's only asleep. They think it's all over. They think she's 12 years old on the brink of marriage. And this is essentially a wasted life. So it's the, height, the uh, heightened tragedy. It's not just a 20-year-old that has died. But this is like, you know, you've trained your whole life for a sport, and then you never get to play the game. And she's 12 years old. She's been working, gathering wisdom. She's been growing in her abilities. And now she is 12 years old. She's, she's ready to get married to someone, most likely. And now she's dead. This is a heightened tragedy by her age. 
But, and so they think this is a tragedy and it's over for her. But Jesus understands that this is not the end. It's not you know, the final page of her story, if you will. He says that she's asleep. Now, if you remember the story of Lazarus, John 11, Jesus actually responds the same way there. When he received the report that Lazarus had died, remember that he looked at his disciples and said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Remember that? But I go, he said, so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And just like these professional mourners in Mark 5, the disciples look at Jesus and say, Lord, uh, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. He's, it's going to be all right, Jesus. <laughs> he's going to wake up. If he's asleep, then it's going to be okay. Now, they don't laugh at him, but they're cl- clearly confused by what Jesus is saying. And John tells us explicitly in John 11, verse 13, that Jesus was knowingly speaking about Lazarus' death. It wasn't a mistake. Uh, The disciples thought he was speaking of literal sleep, but Jesus then in verse 14 tells them plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. All right, I'm not wrong here. Just listen. He's asleep. And let me show you what that means. And then he goes and raises him from the dead. So the language of sleep is a way, a metaphor to communicate that death is not the end. So Jesus is not wrong here to say the little girl's asleep. He's just using a metaphor that means that she is certainly dead, but not in the sense that they think she is. She's not beyond hope, but Jesus is about to prove that for them. They think it's over. Jesus is about to show that there is no problem that can exceed the bounds of his power. They sort of restricted him uh, to problems up to death. Yeah, you can take care of that, Jesus. We'll take care of the rest. It's our job, right? We're professional mourners. We'll come in. We'll take care of it. And Jesus is about to show them, no, his help exceeds the greatest problem. Certainly the greatest problem of humanity is sin and its consequence, which is death. And Jesus shows here that death is not the final answer or the final victor in the story of redemption. And to Jesus, death is no more than sleep. It's not the final state. It's only temporary. Remember, Mark is trying to set before us Jesus Christ so that we would see Him and worship Him and follow Him. And He's underscoring His authority over and over again. And now here we come to the greatest problem imaginable, death. And Jesus treats it as if it's your child is sleeping in bed and you go and you shake them and wake them up. Now, some of you, that's a little more difficult than others. But it's not the height of resurrection. But to Jesus, it's like, okay, it's time to wake up and we're going to see that. Now, we know theologically that death is only a temporary state where the body is asleep in the grave, but the soul, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why throughout the New Testament, Following this scene in John 11, Christians always or often refer to death as sleep. It's only temporary. It's not permanent. It's not the end. And of course, all of this is grounded in the reality of Christ's resurrection. Jesus is the pioneer. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one to go. He's the one who pioneers the resurrection. Because He rose we too will rise from the dead. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. What I'm saying is he was the first to rise from the dead in this particular way. And here, as in John 11 and elsewhere, this rising of the little girl is a foretaste of the great event of the resurrection, which is why Jesus just refers to it as sleep. And so then, verse 40, Jesus puts them all out. It's a strong language. He puts them all out of the room, and he takes along with him the child's father and mother and his companions, Peter, James, and John. And he entered the room where the child was, Taking the child by the hand, verse 41, he said to her, Talitha kum, 
which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Now I want to point out just a couple of things here as we wrap this up. Every detail of this story communicates personal affection. This is about the mercy of Christ. It's about how he's, He looks upon faith and He's moved to act. And his, his posture is one to alleviate the suffering and pain of His people. And here we see all of that mercy pointed in a very specific way. It's not general. Certainly God is generally merciful. But here we see the personal affection of Christ. Jesus could have healed her with a word from a distance. He could have done that. But He doesn't do that because He's going out of His way to showcase for us, for you, that He is merciful in the personal stance of it. In the, in the per, first person personal. In, for me and my. Right? He's personal. He's near. He's present. And in this case, He's showcasing His mercy as He takes this little girl by the hand and He says to her, Talitha kum. It's an Aramaic expression that literally means this. Little lamb, get up. Little lamb, get up. Talitha is the word little lamb. It was a pet, a common pet name for young children. It's what a father would call his little girl. Which is why Mark tells us that the translation is little girl. It virtually means little girl. Because it was so common for the father to call his daughter little lamb. Little lamb. So Jesus, just in a natural outflow of his genuine affection for this little girl, looks at her and he says, little lamb, it's time to get up. Verse 42 tells us that she immediately got up and began to walk. And it's striking to me. The details are just something. He says, so the little girl gets up and began to walk for she was 12 years old. Now why does Mark wait until the end of the story to tell us that she's 12? Well, because I think if you don't know how old she is leading up to this, how old are you going to think she is? Little. A little baby, virtually. Because all of these terms of affection and endearment are being used. And why? Because it's trying to communicate for us, and it is communicating for us, that this is the way in which Christ views His people. Jairus loved this little girl? Sure. She was 12. She wasn't a little girl. But Jairus loved her as if she was a little girl. She would always be his little girl. And in this moment, Jesus looks at the little girl and He calls her Talitha, little lamb. Not because she's so little that she can't walk, but because she is affectionately loved. She's dear. She's precious. She's a prize. And so the Lord says, Talitha. And Mark says, look, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. She's a little girl. You're thinking, well, how is this baby getting up and walk? No, she's 12. She's grown. She's a grown woman. She was just greatly loved. And then verse 42 the text says that the people were completely astounded. The disciples, the parents, the mourners, everyone is in a state of amazement. The word literally means to stand outside of yourself. It's a feeling of astonishment mixed in with fear because what you've just witnessed is something like you know, extraordinary. And it's, it's interesting because the phrase literally in Greek is this. They were astonished with a great astonishment. So it's used twice. <laughs> they were astonished with a great astonishment. It's a Hebraism, just a way of emphasizing the height and depth of their amazement. Now there's more here. Um, and if you're interested in hearing about verse 43, I'm happy to talk with you. But I need to wrap it up here. And I just want to remind you that the point of this passage is to set Christ before your eyes. Now, my question to you is this. Is this your Savior? Does your God have this kind of mercy? If you are following a God who is not this merciful, you are not following the only living and true God. 
This is who God is. He is a God who is merciful. He is patient. He bears with us. He remembers our feeble frame. And Father-like, He tends and cares for us. This is God. And He calls you to not be afraid. Just trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this reminder of Your mercy. Help us to see and believe and live in response to this great theological reality that you are so merciful. Forgive us where we have thought otherwise of you and help us all now to run to you as a child to a father and find you to be the merciful and gracious God that you tell us you are in your word. Thank you, Father, for this great truth. Amen.